following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 9. Well, we've been away from Romans, uh, our study in the book of Romans now for, I think, three weeks. Uh, we were uh, last in Romans the last Sunday of May. And uh, excited to get back into the study again. And uh, our text for today is chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. You can see on the screen there, if you uh, don't have a Bible, there's a few pew Bibles around. You can grab one of those and uh, look it up. So Romans chapter 9, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises." Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God-blessed forever? Amen. Well, we have reached the most controversial chapter in the book of Romans. And uh, maybe the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible. I I can't think of another chapter in Scripture that... Uh, inspires more passionate debate among Christians than Romans chapter 9. Now that's primarily because uh, Romans 9 really is the point of the spear in the divide between what we oftentimes call Calvinists and Arminians. And uh, nothing gets Christians fired up quite like a debate over Calvinism and Arminianism. In Romans 9 presses the central issue in in that divide and in that debate, which is, who ultimately determines who will be saved? Is it the choice of God, or is it the choice of man? And Romans 9 has a lot to say about that very difficult issue. And in the process, Romans 9 opens a second big can of worms, which is, what we oftentimes call the problem of evil. Now, that's another very complicated and very sensitive issue because we all suffer. And uh, as well as Christians, we oftentimes grieve over the idea biblically that people who we love and care about are on their way to hell or people who have already passed away, the Bible says, are there right now. And so... But, but if God is all-powerful, well, then couldn't he, 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 he should be able to stop all that from happening. And, and if God is good, we think that He ought to stop it from happening. But He doesn't. So we want to know, why not? Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, why does God allow so much suffering? And how could a good God condemn someone so wonderful as, as my Uncle Joe or you know, Cousin Fred? To eternity in hell? Well, those are hard questions. And once again, there's probably no other place that the Bible presses that kind of issue more specifically than Romans 9. 
And the answer that God is going to give is not one that's always easily to stomach. In fact, it is highly offensive to the natural man who does not to submit to the authority of Scripture. But that's not all. In fact, the, the, really the primary concern of Romans 9-11, through 11, so this is the next major section in the book, is the place of Israel in God's plan of redemption. And that issue, where does Israel fit in God's overall plan, raises another uh, issue of, of major significance, which is the divide between what we oftentimes call dispensationalism and covenant theology. And, uh, and, and that's not an issue that we maybe think about as much as we might the other two, but, but it really does affect how you read the Bible, how you understand prophecy, the mission of the church, the nature of God's people. All is, is shaped dramatically by how you understand the ongoing significance of Israel and the relationship of the New Testament church to Old Testament Israel. And, and Romans 9-11 through 11 is, is probably uh, the central New Testament passage that affects that debate. So, so we're going to open some big cans of worms over the next couple of months, and I'm sure it's going to create some really interesting conversations among us. But I hope, ultimately, that our journey will end where Paul's journey ends in chapter 11, verses 33-36. through 36. So, so turn over there, because I think it's important to frame this whole section with where we want it to end, all right? And Paul ends Romans 11 after talking through just these deep ideas about God and God's purpose by saying in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. We're just saying this, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Folks, that's where we want to end up. That, that above everything else, we want to know our God. We, we want to understand him and his ways as best as the Bible allows. Not so that we can exalt ourselves. Not so that we can win a debate or talk about how smart we are but so that we can know our God, love Him, and worship Him. So, I hope that we'll keep that focus as we work our way through these three chapters. So, so that said, our text for today is, is chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And this passage gets right to the divide between dispensationalism and covenant theology uh, regarding the, the place of Israel and God's purpose. But even more importantly, where we really want to focus today is that this passage challenges us to be zealous for the salvation of the people that God has placed in our lives. And that's a challenge that every Christian needs often, to be passionate about reaching people for Christ. And the passage consists of two sections. So first, verses 1 through 3 challenge us to be zealous for the spread of the gospel. Be zealous for the spread of the gospel. So it's been a few minutes, so let's read uh, verses 1 through 3 again, all right? So Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, it's worth noting that, that this passage takes a pretty dramatic turn 
from what Paul has been discussing in Romans 1 through 8. All right, so, so Romans 8 ended with ended Paul's discussion of the gospel of salvation in Christ on a really high note. So, so look how he ends in verse 39 of chapter 8. He, he ends by declaring that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so Paul gives this tremendous assurance that if you are in Christ, you will always be his child and nothing can separate you from him. So why then? Does he turn around and shift to the evangelist, the, the purpose of God with the Jews in chapter 9? Well, as always, it's helpful to put our shoes in, in the in the put ourselves in the shoes um, of the original readers. So, so, so think about the fact that when Paul wrote Romans, he's writing somewhere around 55, 60 AD. And at that time, for, for almost 1,500 years. God had worked almost exclusively through the nation of Israel. But now, Christ has come. Christ has died on the cross. The gospel is beginning to spread to the nations. And Paul is traveling the world, preaching the gospel. He he just articulated in chapters 1 through 8. And what's a big part of that claim? A big part of that gospel is that Jews and Gentiles are now equal recipients of the grace of God. And and Gentiles don't need to obey the law of Moses. They don't have to circumcise their kids. They don't have to obey the food laws. They they don't have to wear Jewish clothes. And that is a radical change. A radical change. And it was offensive to a lot of Jews. Even to Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so some of them accused Paul of of stripping the Jews of their privileges and blessings. And and some of them even accused him of being anti-Jewish or called him a traitor to his nation. And certainly, when you read verses 1 through 2, you get the impression that Paul had heard those accusations and, and he felt the need to answer them. And so he had heard people say, Paul, you have abandoned your own people. I'm sure someone had probably said, Paul, you love the Gentiles more than you do us. You know, other people maybe had said something like, you're a traitor. And even people who were sympathetic to Paul's message, maybe even a Gentile listener, would think, well, Paul, has God, if if God is doing this new work among the Gentiles, then has God broken his promises to the Jews? And if God broke his promise to the Jews then how can I be sure that he will keep the promises he has made to me? Including the promises that you just mentioned in Romans chapter 8. So Paul has to explain why God has not broken a single promise. And he also, of course, wants to put the Jews at ease. That that, that he loves the Jews, he cares about the Jews, and and he cares for their souls. So so he begins in verses 1 through 3 by expressing his zeal for the Jewish people and his longing to see them be saved. And he prefaces it all in verse 1 by declaring the sincerity of his desire. Now, now notice that, that verse 1 never actually gets to the point. You know, have you ever done this before? You, you start a conversation and you put like a, a whole list of qualifiers on it before you ever actually get around to what you're trying to say. And that's what Paul does here. He, 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 he wants to be very clear that, that, that he is telling the truth. So, 
So he begins the passage by, with three qualifiers, which all emphasize the truthfulness of what he's going to say. And I have to think, again, that that means that, that Paul had heard lots of people doubt what he's about to say. That lots of people rolled their eyes, said he's lying, he's not sincere in what he's trying to say. And so he wants to be very clear that he is telling the truth. In fact, he even calls two members of the Trinity as witnesses to his truthfulness. And, and so he ties that first, so the first two qualifiers, he, he ties to his new life in Christ. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. He, he's saying that, that as a Christian, as a new creature in Christ, I assure you on the positive side that I'm telling the truth. And if you don't believe me, on the negative side, I am not lying. Paul really wants the Romans to believe him. And he understands that that an honest reputation is a precious stewardship. And that's a good reminder for us to to consider uh, once in a while. You know, that that your words are only as valuable as your reputation. And so, don't be sloppy with the truth. When you speak, when you tell a story, when you make an assertion, you don't want people to think, well, you know, that's coming from Tom. Tom. You know, Tom, he's a little bit sloppy with what he has to say. He tends to sensationalize things. He's not very careful with details. So, so, so you just have to take what Tom says with a grain of salt. No. You want to be someone who is careful with the truth so that no one ever has any reason to doubt what you have to say. Because that confidence, that trust is a precious stewardship. And Paul understood that. And so just to be sure that that they trust what he has to say, he adds, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what Paul's saying is, my conscience is not the least bit pricked by what I'm about to tell you. This is coming from the heart. And in case someone says, "Well, well, yeah, but maybe your conscience is seared. He appeals to the indwelling spirit as another witness that, that this is the sincere expression of his heart. And again, I hope that you could say the same about everything that comes out of your mouth. It is true, and you don't feel the slightest conviction of conscience that you are not saying what is true. And then, after all those qualifiers, Paul finally gets to his assertion. In verses 2 and 3, express Paul's sorrow. And so, again, he tells us there that, that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief for the salvation of Israel. Now, now that is some very strong and very intense language. And so why does Paul feel so strongly? Well, again, that's because almost 1,500 years prior, God had told Abraham that he would be the father of Messiah. And for 1,500 years, Israel had waited for, for the Messiah to come. They had endured with that hope. And now, Messiah had come. Jesus had died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. And He provided salvation for all who believe. And so this is the one that they've been waiting for ever since Abraham. And so, when Paul believed the gospel, he then immediately began, or well, after several years, began traveling around and Paul's going all over the place, pleading with the Jews to receive Jesus as Messiah. And praise the Lord that 
Some of the places he went, they responded with faith. But most of the Jews were hostile towards his message. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that the Jews in Thessalonica, Berea, and lots of other places were some of Paul's harshest opponents. They drove him, they, they, they stirred up a mob in Thessalonica and drove him out of Thessalonica and Berea. They violently opposed him and, and those who believed his message. And you can imagine that broke Paul's heart because he loved his people, the Jews, and he desperately wanted them to be saved. And what about you? Do you grieve like that for the lost souls in your family? You know, do you think often about the fact there are people maybe in your home, in your neighborhood, who are on their way to eternal condemnation in hell? Now, parents, is there anything that you want more for your kids than for them to receive Christ and live their lives for Him? And what would your kids say? If you're asking your kids, what, what, are, what, is, what are mom and dad passionate about? But what would they say based on how you invest your time, your energy, and your passion? I hope they could see clearly that your passion for their soul far exceeds any other passion for their future. And what about your coworkers, your neighbors, and the people of Apple Valley, of our community? Do you spend more time fuming about how irritating they are, frustrated at their politics, or do you grieve for their souls and you're working to reach them for Christ? What does your prayer life say about what matters to you? Are your prayers consumed with worldly cares and interests? Or are you praying that God would give you a deep burden for souls and use you to reach them? I think all of us should be challenged by, by Paul's zeal here for the souls of his people. I mean, Paul had given his life to reaching them, and, and, and he, hadn't, you know, he hadn't wrote them off. I mean, think about all the, the harsh things that he had endured, the, the nasty things that he had faced. And yet his heart still burned with fire to see the Jews come to Christ. And so pray that God would give you a deep burden for your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers your classmates, the people of our town. And, and then work to grow that burden. You know, Jesus said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, so what he means by that is, is the places that you invest your energy will be the things that you begin to love. And so, get involved in reaching people for Christ. Pray for their salvation. Share the gospel. Invite people to church. Listen to their heart. And as you invest in that, God will grow your vision and your passion. And God will use you to reach them. And that's what Paul did. He prayed for his people. He worked hard to reach them. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that the first place he would go when he visited a new community was, was right to the synagogue where he could share the gospel with the Jews. And he desperately wanted them to be saved. In fact, in fact, notice the claim he makes in verse 3. I mean, verse 3 is pretty incredible. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, now that is 
Quite a statement, isn't it? And Paul says that if he could sacrifice his own soul to save the Jewish people, he would do it in a heartbeat. Now, now we might think, well, that, that, he can't really mean that, right? But, but the word that's translated accursed is the word anathema, and it always refers in the New Testament to eternal damnation. Now, now Paul, of course, didn't want to be damned to hell, and, and he certainly didn't want to be separated from Christ. And Christ was his life, his greatest love. And of course, I think it's worth, worth just noting that there's no way Paul could actually do that, right? Like, only Christ can atone for sins, and there's no way you can trade your soul for your kids or trade your soul for your community. But that's why Paul only says, I could wish that I could do that. But I think it's still a sincere desire of his heart. I mean, I mean he just said in verse 1, I'm speaking from the heart. This is really true. That if Paul could give his eternal soul for the Jews, he would do that. And it's interesting, Moses says something very similar following Israel's rebellion with the golden calf. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, if you will forgive their sin, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. And Paul here makes a similar request. He was willing to sacrifice his soul if he could to see Israel saved. And that ought to prompt all of us to ask, what are you willing to sacrifice to reach the people that you love for Christ? Or, Or maybe even a more direct question to ask is what does it take to stop you from sharing the gospel? I think all of us probably can look back at different times and we're ashamed of the the petty things that have kept us from talking to people about Christ. You know, we, we, don't want, we don't want an argument. And so we value peace around the dinner table more than we value the souls of people who are going to be somewhere for all of eternity. You know, maybe it is that we want their acceptance, we want their love. We, we, we can't possibly... Uh, risk losing this relationship. And so we value a relationship over the fact that this person is lost and on his, his or her way to hell. And maybe there's been a time where you've compromised your testimony at work because you've got to get that promotion. Even if it comes at the cost of your testimony and creates a roadblock to evangelism. So we have to remember often That eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. Now now again, God is sovereign and and, and God is in control of all things. But but from a human perspective, if people do not hear the gospel, and if they do not respond to the gospel, then they will go to hell for all of eternity. That's a a hard truth to, to grapple with. It's hard to imagine people that you care about being in hell forever and ever. But but we must deal with that reality. Evangelism is crucial. And it ought to be an urgent burden on all of our hearts. And so we need to pray that God would give us a, a deep burden for the lost. Lord, give me courage to say what I need to say, to 
to be willing to risk everything for the souls of men. Lord, give me wisdom to say the right thing at the right time. Because that as well is, is not always easy. And then we just need to step out in faith. You know, I mean, sometimes we get so worried about starting a conversation. And, and so just take a simple step. Ask a probing question. Ask a simple question. Uh, start a conversation. Invite them to church. Invite them to send their kids to vacation Bible school tomorrow. Invite them to do a Bible study. And when the opportunity is right, be bold. And say what God's Word says with love and care, but conviction. And as you do that, watch God grow your burden for the souls of men and women. And see what God might do. You know, God can save anyone. God can save anyone. So, so share the gospel with all of them. So, so the first challenge of our text is be zealous for the spread of the gospel. And then the second challenge is very different, but, but also very important. And, and that challenge is don't presume on God's grace. Don't presume on God's grace. And so verses 4 and 5 then go on to say, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. Now I said again, the, 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 the fundamental challenge that I want to draw from this passage is don't presume on God's grace. And, and I'll explain towards the end why I believe that's the main application. But for now, notice that, that God blessed the nation of Israel with some incredible privileges. So, so verses 4 and 5 tell us that, that, that Israel, was that, that, that Paul's passion for reaching the Jews wasn't just about national pride or patriotism. No. He says these people are, are God's chosen people. And he tells us that, first of all, he identifies his kinsmen according to the flesh as Israelites. Now, that's a significant name because to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has almost always referred to, the, to them as Jews. But here, and, and throughout chapters 9 through 11, he mostly switches to the name Israel. And that's because Jew is, is mostly an ethnic title, whereas Israel is more of a covenant name. And, and, and it originated that, that God, gave, God came up with the name Israel in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, when God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And he did so to symbolize to Jacob his, his special love, his commitment to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants. And so from then on, that name Israel was not just like USA or America. It, it was a symbol of, of God's choice of Israel, his commitment to them, his promise to them. And, um, and, and then the rest of verse 4 lists several blessings that came from that choice. Now, now, I do want to emphasize, and I want to emphasize that, that Paul does put all these blessings in the present tense. He says all these things belong right now to the nation of Israel. And, and I just want to mention that because, uh, again, verses nine, chapters 9 through 11 are, are very important to that debate over the ongoing role of Israel in God's salvific purpose. And, and those uh, that hold to covenant theology are going to say that when Christ came and when Israel rejected Messiah, 
that all the promises to Israel were transferred to the church. But Paul says, after all of that has happened, that all of these blessings still belong to Israel. All right? And we're going to say a whole lot more about that over the next couple of months as we work our way, probably more than a couple of months, uh, through these three chapters. So the first blessing he mentions is that God had adopted Israel as his son. Now, a while back, we, we saw in chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, that, that Christ has adopted Christians into his family. And so we're sons of God, we're daughters of God, and, and, and we belong to him, and, and he has a glorious inheritance awaiting his children in heaven. And here he says that God also adopted Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that every Israelite was genuinely born again. In fact, you see throughout Scripture that most of them were not. So, so Israel's adoption is a national one versus ours is individual and eternal. And yet God made a marvelous commitment to the Jews. He, he, he made them his children. And then as well, Paul says, that Israel possessed glory. Now, now some people believe that glory here is a reference to eternal glory, but I think the, the simpler view is that God blessed Israel with the glory of his presence. Really going all the way back to the Exodus. And remember when Israel marched out of Egypt, that God gave them the glory cloud that was fire, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And, and so God's uh, visible presence was with Israel all the way to the time of Ezekiel. And that was a huge blessing. They could look, think of the people out there in the wilderness, they could look at that pillar of cloud and know that God was with them. That's special. No one else has had that. And then as well, he adds it that God had given Israel several unique and special covenants. You know, God made promises to them in, through the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the New Covenant. And again, no one else in all the world received promises like those from God. And as well, God gave Israel the law. Now, now, we might be tempted to think, well, I'm glad I don't have the law. You know, we don't want the law, but we might think of the law as more of a curse than a blessing. But for the Israelites, the law was a tremendous gift. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 8, Moses said that if Israel obeyed God's law, that other nations would look at them and say, surely, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Now, sometimes, as Christians, we're tempted to despise God's law. Right? And to think, you know, life would be so much easier if God didn't give me any rules, any commands, any boundaries, I could just do whatever I want. But the reality is, is that God's law is the key to wisdom. And God's law protects us from, from, from things that are destructive to ourselves and our relationship to Him. You know, the commands of Scripture are for your protection and good. They are a grace. And it's good to remember that often. And next, God gave Israel... The temple service. That's a reference to the sacrificial system and all the other rituals that, that Israel had to follow surrounding the tabernacle and then the temple in the Old Testament. Now, now, I am very glad as a New Testament Christian 
that I don't have to bring a lamb and go to a physical temple in order to worship God. And I'm sure you are as well. But I would much rather have to travel to a temple with a lamb than to be entirely cut off from the presence of God. Because nothing in the universe is more precious than the nearness and the grace of God. And the temple service gave Israel the opportunity to have a relationship with God and to be near Him. It was a great blessing and a mark of great pride, rightfully so. And then as well, uh, verse 4 mentions the promises. And and, uh, we already uh, talked about the fact that God gave Israel a number of tremendous promises through uh, the covenants that He had made. And then verse 5 adds that He also gave them the fathers. That's a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Jews, again, took great pride in the fact that their ancestors were these men whom God had called and whom God had given these tremendous promises to. They were their fathers, and the same promises that they received belonged to them. But of course, the greatest grace, the greatest blessing that God had given to the nation of Israel is there in the second part of verse 5. He says, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, as we already said, from from the time of Abraham, Israel's great hope was that someday God was going to send the Messiah. And someday God would send them a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And, And that as the perfect prophet, uh, this Messiah would fully declare to them the truth of God. As their priest, he would heal their sin and provide them with complete access to God. And as their king, he would deliver them from every enemy and provide them with peace and prosperity. I mean, all of Israel's hopes centered on this coming Messiah. And then, Messiah came in the person of Jesus, just as God promised. And notice here that that verse 5 powerfully affirms that, that He is both fully human and fully God. I mean, He was an Israelite according to the flesh. Just as God promised. He was born a descendant of David. And he was born in the town of Bethlehem. Just as the Bible said he would be. And he was just as much a man as you or I or any other person in the world. But of course, he wasn't just a man. No, no, he says here, it says in the NASB that he is over all God blessed forever. So so He is over all. He is sovereign. He is not just another man. He is sovereign over everything that exists. He is the ruler of the universe. That's a clear affirmation of His deity. But frankly, uh, we we probably should understand that statement as being even stronger than what the NASB has. And there's quite a bit of debate about uh, the the grammar and how to best put together this this last phrase in verse 5. But I think the, the ESV probably gets it right when it says that He is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And so Paul says that he is not just great. He's not just strong. He's not just a great man. He is God over all. And so there is none like him. And so think about the fact that Jesus is God, and yet he became a man. And keep your finger here, well, Keep your finger here, but turn back to John chapter 1, because I'd like us to put our eyes in a couple of these verses. 
John chapter 1. He became a man. And uh, we're going to jump around a little bit here, but John 1 verse 14 says that the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh. And, and look at what he says in John 1 verse 11. It says he came to his own. Now who's that talking about? It's talking about the Jews, right? That Jesus came into the world and he came and he, he preached to the people of Israel for three years. And he preached to them like no one had ever preached before. And then he suffered in the city of Jerusalem as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the cross, he bore the punishment of, of every sin and bore our punishment and provided salvation. And through his death and resurrection, notice the promise that is made in John 1, verse 12. He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's an incredible verse. You know, so, so why did Paul have such zeal for, for the Jews to, to recognize who Jesus was and to be saved in him? Well, it's because we are all born sinners. We, we are all, in, in the words of verse 3 of our text, accursed, separated from Christ. You don't have to do anything to go to hell. We are all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. And it's because of that fact that we need to be saved. But, but while we are, we, are, we are sinners before God and, and, and condemned as a result, Paul, or John says there in, verse, in John 1 verse 12 that if we receive Christ, what does he say? God gives us the right to become children of God. And how do you receive Christ? You believe in His name. So you believe everything that we just saw in, in Romans 9 verse 5, that He is the eternal Son of God. He is Lord of creation. And you believe that He is the only Savior who took our sins and Himself and the cross and died in our place. And, and and when you do that, when you receive Christ as, as your Lord and Savior, you become, as God promises here, a child of God. And I wonder, have you done that? Have you received Christ and become His child? Have you acknowledged that He is the only Lord, the only Savior, that you can do nothing to save yourself and put your faith completely in Him. And, and so I, if you've never done that before, I, I'd urge you today to, to recognize that you cannot save yourself. There's nothing you can do. So just believe on Him. Trust in who He is. Put your confidence in Him. Receive Him as your Savior. But because the sobering reality of, this pass, of our passage is is that merely knowing that message does not guarantee your salvation. You know, sadly, our passage says that Christ is only related to Israel, that the nation as a whole, according to the flesh. That's it's an important qualifier, right? Because Paul wants to be clear that, that just because God had given him all these blessings does not mean that the majority of them were going to heaven someday. I mean, he is their physical relative, but he is not their savior. 
because they have not believed on Christ. Now, again, John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Now, now most of the Jews, they didn't think that they needed salvation. They had all the blessings of verses 4 and 5. We're the Israelites. We have the covenant and the promises and the law. We're good. But, But all those blessings didn't change the fact that they were condemned sinners in need of a Savior. And there's so many people still today who are in a similar boat. I don't need to be saved. I've called myself a Christian my whole life. I'm a good Baptist. I'm a good Lutheran. I'm a good Methodist. I'm a good Catholic. Whatever you want to say. Now, I've known the Bible my whole life, and I, I believe it. On and on it goes. Well, don't presume on the grace of God. And just because God has given you many opportunities to hear His Word, just because you've grown up around Christianity and the Bible and all those things, don't presume that that means that you're going to heaven someday. And all those blessings are real and they're significant. They're things to be thankful for. But but the only blessing that will get you to heaven someday is the last blessing of verse 5. That you have received Christ. You must receive Him as Lord and Savior. And without Him, because without Him, all the other blessings are meaningless. But with Him, they become great graces. So receive Christ. And then if you are a Christian, rejoice in the salvation that is yours. And then going back to verses 1-3, through Embrace Paul's burden to reach the lost. Who is it in your life that that needs Christ? Are you praying for them? Are are you zealously trying to reach them with the gospel? This week, commit to share the gospel. Commit to be bold. Commit to the fact that you want them to be saved more than you want anything else out of that relationship. And go after them for the Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You so much for the challenge and the warning of this passage, the, the, the strong reality that's there. And Father, I pray for all of us who, who know You as Savior, that God, You'd give us a deep burden to reach people for Christ. Give us a vision for the souls around us, those in our own home, those in our workplace, those in our community. Help us to see everyone in light of eternity. And and God, give us boldness to share the gospel. And Lord, use us to reach people for Christ. And God, I pray as well for any who are here who have not ever received Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that today they would believe the gospel and be saved. God, work in their hearts and and draw them to yourself. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for this word. We thank you especially for the gospel of Christ. God, I pray that everyone would leave today believing that gospel, loving that gospel, and motivated to share it with everyone around them. In Jesus' name, amen.